Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder partner of Village Global, a network-driven VC firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on all topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. This episode is about the state of healthcare with Malay Gandhi, investor in EIR at Greylock, and Christine Lemke, founder of Evidation Health. We talk about how to think about building a company in the space, how to think about investing in health tech, what common mistakes both founders and investors make, where the white spaces and opportunities are, and what can we expect five to 10 years from now. We've been co-investing with Malay and Christine for a bit now. They're some of the smartest minds in the space, and I think you'll see why in this episode. All right, here's Malay. Guys, welcome to the Village Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yes. So we have a lot uh, that we're going to talk about today on the investing side of what's interesting in digital health, as well as building a company in the digital health space. But first, I want to bring up something even more important that I know you guys are dealing with as a team, which is, Christine, you've encouraged Malay to tweet more. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about you know how that came about and, and how difficult that might, must have been for, for you guys uh. to go through? Well, Malay has been, if anyone follows Malay, they've noticed that he's gone silent over the last few months for inexplicable reasons. Yet he is such a good tweeter when he actually tweets. He's so interesting and smart. And I think it's a loss to the world that we can't you know, receive these tweets. So we made a bet about an, a certain investment that uh, if I was right about the investment, then he would have to get on Twitter and tweet for one week straight. Uh, and so that's why he reappeared momentarily, but I think now he's off again, and I wish he'd come back on. Was that tough for you, Malay? It was hard. Uh, Christine can attest that, that that was actually lost, I think, roughly two <laughs> months ago. It was back in the summer, so it did take me some uh, amount of time and weekly prodding to go yes. back on Twitter. Uh, and then to have to generate a tweet each day. I don't, I don't think Christine caught that I actually missed day seven. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> well, they I was rested. expecting day seven at some point. Yeah, you rested on I, day I seven. Did, I did tweet the seventh time. It just right. didn't occur on the seventh day, unfortunately. Yes. Even God rested on the seventh day. <laughs> exactly. Time. I get it. So Malay can too. Totally. So getting right to it, Malay, you wrote this Medium post last year. It was the last public writing I could find about you know why it's been so hard to build a a big company in the digital health space, why there haven't been unicorns or as many unicorns in the space as we wanted, even though the opportunity was ripe and that the gains have gone to the incumbents in the space. Talk a little bit more about about that thesis, why that's been the case and why why now it's different or going to be different. I think the, the overall thesis of that particular essay was that when we looked back about let's call it five years or so, um, which was roughly around the time that like Rock Health started and this term digital health became popularized. And we looked back over those five years, there didn't seem to be a lot of venture size outcomes. So there was about a half dozen um, M&A type of events of venture backed companies above $300 million. And then probably, you know, s- somewhere around like 10 to 12 IPOs, but very few trading above a billion in EV. So from a venture perspective, there didn't seem to be great returns. And so the, the thesis of the piece was that all of these companies that were starting, many of them, I shouldn't say all, were in fact working so closely with the industry, it had been hard to accrue value. So when you looked at any public financials or anything, the companies were actually very slow to grow to right. $100 million in revenue, if at all, which just can't really sustain particularly large companies. And I think that's juxtaposed with an industry that's $3.2 trillion dollars right. or something, which is a number we always hear about and mm-hmm. 
I, I look at many like sort of investment uh, memos or thesis that companies give us for like why we should invest yeah. in a company. And the first slide is always like, well, it's a three point two trillion one fifth of the economy. Yeah, one one fifth of the economy. And I, I think the, the the reason that that's particularly interesting is over the last like ten years, we've seen companies like Airbnb emerge, where which do have enterprise value above the incumbent hotel companies. And the question is like when we go and look at all these large large market cap healthcare companies. No technology company has really taken much value from them. And so the thesis of the piece was that the companies that work with the industry tend not to succeed. And so maybe companies should be thinking of building a different, a different type of healthcare system. Right. And uh, Christina, I was listening to an interview that, that you were doing, and you mentioned that there's two models. You can work within the system and you can work without the system. And, and that you've sort of, uh, you said, like, don't do as I uh, do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you recommended, you, you've looked at, from an investor lens to, investment companies outside the system. Why is that? And and where exactly are you looking for companies to, to work outside the system? I mean, I think part of that is driven by timing. I don't think Airbnb would have been successful if they had started even a couple of years before they started. Right. The timing was right for, an, you know, the timing was right for a new entrant to come in and disrupt the status quo in, in the hotel industry. And it would probably behoove us all to look at what exactly were the factors in those industries um, that led to Airbnb being able to penetrate in and then grow like they have. Um, and and I think in healthcare, five years ago when we started Evidation, it was not the right time to attempt to you know create some wedge into the industry and grow it. I think today entrepreneurs should look at what are the existing um, consumer behaviors that are changing right now and how do I surf one of those waves into something that can actually disrupt incumbents versus work alongside them. Right. So that was my comment about, you know, do what I say, not what right. I do. It, it's really a comment on timing. Um, and so I, I think we can dive in a little bit later on where we see specific yep. wedges, but I, I actually see a lot of consumer behavior changing as it relates to the way that they interact with the healthcare system that yep. are going to provide some really unique wedges in. Yeah. So we will get to that. Uh, but Malay, you mentioned briefly, you called this uh, Lemke's Law. And it was about consumer behavior. Can you talk about what that what that law is? Yeah, I, we we spent a lot of time over the years looking at investments. I mean, there, there's this idea that um, like most chronic disease is preventable, like yep. around the world. And if people would just change their behaviors, and they yep. always use phrasing "just" beforehand, it's usually yeah. like epidemiologists or yeah. policy people. People would just change their behaviors, then you know we would have like a really healthy society. And so you can imagine. There's plenty of companies that uh, have pitched me and, and Christine over the years with this idea of like, hey, we sell behavior change. That's what we do. We figured out a way to make it happen. And one of the things that um, you know we were really fortunate to do when I was at Rock Health was have the entrepreneurs review a lot of the potential investments with us. Yep. So the entrepreneurs would come in. We would actually review a lot of when we had the accelerator, all the applications. We'd sit in a room all day and they would right. review stuff with us. And this idea emerged from uh, Christine over, over that time and then in the ensuing years that, like, none of this stuff actually scales. Right. It turns out that behavior change is not a singular thing yes. and you cannot turn it into a, a single product and now sell it to people. And right. so that, that was the idea of Lemke's Laws. That, and bas- basically the way I've internalized it, which you might disagree with it, is that, like, anything that uh, looks like a behavior change today yep. can't stay on that path permanently. Right. Pe- people, are, right. uh, people change and behavior yep. is fundamentally mutable and, yeah. Fact, and so we'll be um, shifted over time. So the, the, there's no silver bullet for, for right. behavior change. And we, a lot of people try to sell that to me, that, cool. that idea exists. I want to hear more about your investment thesis at, at uh, Ensemble or Ensemble? 
ensemble. You ensemble the ensemble. Um, it depends on where you're from. <laughs> right, yeah. totally. That ensemble. Um, and so uh, I want to hear about what you guys are looking for, what you think is hard, or, or you guys are staying away from. But uh, you, I want to use um, that as sort of a lens to. You know, because healthcare is three point two trillion, as you mentioned, and one fifth of the economy, a lot of investors uh, who aren't don't have domain expertise are looking to invest in the space. A lot of repeat entrepreneurs are looking to build companies in the space because it's more meaningful. Um, can you sort of give? I know this is almost an impossible question, but a sort of a high level uh, mini market map, or what are the sort of the main subsectors? And, and as you do that, uh, you could say, "Hey, here's what we're looking for, where we're diving deeper, and here's where we're straying away from a little bit." I think that, um, you know, the core of some of the investment thesis and how at least I tend to look at the space and I'll be curious for Christine's view as well is really just around value extraction. Yeah. Um, that's the main way that I think about it. And a lot of people can think about that as the customer potentially of like yeah. where, where you extract money from. And I, I do think uh, it actually does matter quite a bit in healthcare. There's uh, been a lot of what I would call like value creation for end users in a lot of health tech companies, but not a lot of value extraction. And then more purposefully uh, going in the theme of working outside the industry, looking for value destruction of who loses when the company when the company wins. So I would say that's a general framing. So the easiest way to probably talk about the sector in general is like who who is who is the customer. So you frequently hear things like you know payers, providers, life sciences companies, and consumer is like an, an easy easy way to map the space. I'm happy uh, offline to send you a spreadsheet of like yep. you know, the 40 categories, the right. market mapping that was done. Uh, you know, I, I did some work after I, like in early, early 2016 before I wrote that piece to, to remap. I think the, the thing that's tricky about the, about like the healthcare space is that it's actually just not, it's just not one, one right. category and um, healthcare should probably be divided at least um, simply into like three, three possible buckets. One is like the buy side. So the yep. people who actually pay for healthcare, which are, you know, like consumers and households, right. government, and then corporations pay pay for healthcare. You have a bunch of uh, folks who sit in the middle of that. You kind of move and push paper around. They're the furthest from actual like value creation um, in the industry. And then you have the producers who are either delivering services like doctors, yep. physicians, hospitals, that kind of thing, and then pharmaceutical companies, yep. medical device companies, and and others. So that that's how I tend to like think about the uh, like value chain, and then where right. you sort of extract it extract it from. Um, then, sorry, the, the other part of your question is what, what is the investment thesis? Yep. Um, so one piece that wasn't really touched upon in that in that in the in the medium essay was around the life sciences sector, and so I think that's a big um, counterexample to the idea that you can't build a big business by working with the industry. And in fact, like if we look, Viva and Metadata are two good examples of like strong public companies that sell directly into right. that single vertical. It's a multi-trillion-dollar industry that runs on software gross margins. Yep. Uh, sophisticated buyers, concentrated industry groups. There's a bunch of pieces out that are actually quite attractive for building companies. So I would say that is definitely one long line of investment thesis for us. And that's about every part of the life sciences value chain from drug discovery, uh, clinical trials or clinical development, commercialization, post-commercialization, production, fulfillment, drug pricing. I think all those things are pretty interesting to us as one of the broad areas of broad areas of thesis. Do you have any sort of nuanced, um, slight differences of opinion where, hey, you're more excited about this than, than Christina is, or Christina's more excited or less excited about a certain subsector? I think, um, yeah, I think we're all, almost always in violent disagreement about a lot of the companies we look at, which I think is good tension to have when you're looking at investing, especially 
Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, where we agree, I think, is we're both looking for places where um, consumers are starting to shift their fundamental behavior patterns. They're starting to get curious about their own data. They're trying to draw their own data out of the system. You know, there's all this digital data capture going on through wearable devices, through interactions with your mobile phone, et cetera, which is part of the thesis for my company, Evidation. Um, but we're finding all these places where people are touching health, don't really understand how to navigate the system or really understand how the system relates to them. And we think that's like a really interesting wedge into it to create a disruptive company. And I hate to say that we're disruptive again and again, but something that's reordering of the entire industry versus yep. surfing alongside a payer or surfing alongside a provider or even a life sciences company. Um, one area where we probably have more tension is around the provider space in general. Yeah. Um, Malay doesn't like it. What? Malay doesn't like it. Well, it, it's funny that he says he doesn't like it because <laughs> the last couple investments are in that space. Because I keep so. sending him deals in that space. <laughs> Do you? Right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think I am not a fan at all of the right. provider space. Um, I think it's a really tough uh, sales process. Um, it, it's very d- difficult to you know, get a sophisticated buyer who really values some product differentiation over checking boxes in some cases. Um, and that's just the way that their purchasing systems right. are structured, no fault of, of the buyer in some ways. Um, but I, I'm very negative on the space and actually as a routine, I usually turn away all of those things, whereas Malay will dive deeper into something right. um, than, than I will in that space. And uh, if you weren't building Evidation Health but wanted to build a, another company in the digital health space, how would you think about like, what are some other ideas you might pursue or, or recommend? If someone came to you and said, hey, I want to build a company digital health, what's, what's a good idea? Like- I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I'm so myopically focused on my company right. that I rarely, um, I rarely think of other things. But um, I, I really like the idea of people build, building almost virtual providers. Yeah. So not selling to providers as much as displacing some right. part of what providers do today. Like, you could think of a, a virtual fertility clinic in some ways right. or a virtual pain clinic or virtual um, depression clinic, et cetera. Um, some things where it, it's obvious that the brick and mortar system is not servicing either the breadth of people that they could reach today or maybe not servicing them um, holistically. Yeah. I, I think there's really interesting opportunity there. Right. I think what um, you know, Christina is, is uh, hinting at as well is like one of the things that we're interested in from an investment thesis perspective when she says you know, consumer behaviors are shifting we're looking for you know some of these kind of explosive forces that we're absolutely right. willing to bet on. And so telehealth as like a general category isn't interesting, but what Christine is describing is very interesting. So historically, you've had these local delivery monopolies. Like in the, yep. in the history of medicine, people have just practiced it face-to-face. And now what we see is consumers have an extraordinarily high willingness to be treated virtually. And then some of the data that Christine's talking about being used as a diagnostic tool or aid that can also be collected on on the consumer side. And so what I get really excited about in the provider space is not provider IT, despite Christine <laughs> insisting that that's what I spend my time looking at, uh, which is definitely not true. Um, uh, it, is, it is true in the sense that I did recently send her a provider IT deal to look at. Um, but, you know, the idea of building these vertically integrated specialty clinics, and um, it's, it's really fascinating to us that, like, people can come up with new care delivery models what we don't want to do is see a company sell that into the provider system and try to change and adapt the behavior of a bunch of physicians. We want them to do is build a clinic and go compete with them. Right. And this gets to the value extraction point of like where, where do you really want to fit in the system? Yeah. Do you want to go to the provider and try to take some money out of like a low operating margin business? Or if you're fundamentally doing something better, 
and then with virtual health or telemedicine, we view that as this massive explosive right. force where we can scale a business across 50 states yep. very quickly, like in under 18 months. There's yep. 10 law firms that know how to get a telehealth clinic set up in 50 states. Right. There's virtual uh, pharmacy, everything else yep. is happening now there. So we, we're really attracted to that kind of concept, again, because it breaks the local delivery monopoly, which is something that I don't think was true you know, five, five years ago. But now today, right. when you look at the state of telehealth, is actually possible. Is Solve an example of one of your investments in that space? Solve is, um, a, is better characterized as an investment around like where consumer behavior is is shifting. They're, they're not going to own any care. In fact, I mean, it's actually one of the very few pure software companies you see um, in, the, in the delivery space. Uh, they're building a marketplace for convenient yep. care. Yep. Um, and the, the, biggest, the biggest shift that we see there is that consumers are now showing very, very strong preference right. to receive care in a timely manner. Um, that started like many, many, many years ago before yep. like even some of us were born with urgent care clinics and then these retail clinics, which existed in grocery stores and pharmacies, started to emerge. And then the last few years have really been around telehealth. Yep. And there is just a very clear and strong preference by consumers to have access to care in a, right. in a timely way. And they're optimizing that choice around convenience. So what Solve is doing is providing yep. consumers an easy way to um, find and book on convenient care. Right. One of the big themes from your piece was uh, was owning outcomes and unbundling middlemen. Right. Since you were the piece maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, have you seen more and more entrepreneurs, more companies try to uh, build from without the system? Not as many as I would like. I mean, I feel like we could count on one hand how many we've seen that are truly, um, truly not, in a way, partnering directly with the system and instead going their own way. And when are we just not thinking big enough? Is it just too daunting? Is it I, I lack think of information? Or? I, I, I probably... So I, I would love to hear Malay's opinion on this. Um, from my perspective, I, I think it's very risky and capital intensive. People have this notion that it's um, it's going to take them hundreds of millions of dollars to build some of these things. And I would challenge that notion now, especially now that there's a bunch of telehealth companies that have scaled to all 50 states. People don't realize the chassis is built. Right. Um, like now go do go innovate on top of all of the railroad tracks everybody else has put down. Um, so part of it is just the lingering like the digital health space has been really difficult for many years. And so when that happens, um, sometimes entrepreneurs and investors don't see when it's inflecting. Right. Um, and I would argue that we're seeing early signs of inflection that people yeah. really aren't taking advantage of. Yeah, I'll, I'll share an anecdote that I think is telling of like how entrepreneurs kind of view the space. So on, on the one hand, there was this um, entrepreneur who started one of the very few like publicly traded health tech companies about 20 years ago and then has had like a kind of long and storied career. And he set out to start a health insurance company, which as Christine said, no matter any way you cut it is a capital intensive endeavor, you right. need, like statutory capital like, to yeah. do it. And then we had a room full of like kind of younger entrepreneurs who are part of like Greylock, Greylock Hacks. And they were describing their businesses before, uh, you know, this entrepreneur, the original entrepreneur, the, the experienced entrepreneur described that they were starting an insurance company and all of them wanted to improve health in right. some way. And they like were developing software or machine learning or whatever else. And they wanted to sell it. And they were asking, like, who do we sell it to? Like, who do yep. we give our, our software to? And so this is actually like the progression line of, right. hey, I do something that's like better than the existing system. And why won't everyone just accept that? Because we know it'll improve outcomes right. for patients. And the answer is like, because nobody actually cares. Right. They're not going to pay you for it. And it's not scalable. So then they go to the next piece, which is like what Christine and I were describing. Like, oh, I'm going to own it. I'm going to like vertically integrate it. I will be the provider that is. Yeah. You won't do right. this thing that's way better for your patients. And I will just treat them. And they go, wait, how do we own the outcomes? And then somebody will be like, well, you take risks. 
And like, well, I guess I should just become an insurance company. <laughs> so the natural end state, in fact, it turns Everybody's out that like, anyone who thinks that they improve an outcome, right, right. there is some line of logic. If you spend long enough like uh, thinking about it, you end up being like, oh, I guess I just have to become an insurance company. Right. Which is also, by the way, why people would argue for single-payer healthcare. Right. Right. Single-payer healthcare system. Not that I agree with that. So I think we've seen actually comparatively very few companies that have the ambition to build like full stack types of, right. of businesses. We see we see some of them for sure, but still largely it's people uh, observe something where care is not working well right. and they want to deliver a software solution um, uh, against, against that, not take right. on take on the whole. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Oscar is one of those examples, right? Oscar is a great example. But people have seen that they've gone through a tough time. You had to raise a lot of money, regulation changes under their feet. But are, are you long Oscar? <laughs> are you are long people that take that those types of Risk? What's your market cap right now? <laughs> market cap? I think the last, last round valuation is probably around 2.7 2. 2. Right. billion. Yeah, that's why like I said that. market cap, not yeah. EV. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I'm long is the idea of new, new insurance companies. Yep. I think Americans deserve new insurance yep. companies. And I think a lot of the aspects of what these companies are doing, I'm, I'm actually an Oscar member. Make a, make a ton of sense. Yep. I think the the challenge with a lot of these full stack businesses is some entrepreneurs who are building them tend to approach them from a standpoint of, hey, can I use software to run a more efficient business? Right. And the answer is conclusively yes. No one will yep. walk into Aetna or Humana and look at that GNA side yep. of the business and say like, wow, this is a really efficiently run business. Yeah. It can take them six months to turn an account on. It takes them right. forever to like respond to member inquiries. They're just really, really inefficient businesses. I don't actually think that's the central question of investing in these kinds of businesses. I think the question is like, where where can you gain a distribution and scale right. advantage? Because at a unit level, a business that trades at a 0.5 to 1x revenue multiple is not interesting to me. Yep. So these companies can grow their top lines, which is fine because they're a health insurance company, you're talking about $5,000 per customer if you're Medicare Advantage, $10,000 per customer. The question is like, where is technology, software, something you're doing actually a weapon in distribution and scaling your business? And so I think also the, the entrepreneurs who are, you know, desire the ambition to build like a new insurance company or a new PBM or a new kind of provider, they also have to answer the question of like, how do you scale this business in a way that isn't the same way people scaled businesses 30 years ago? Right. Which it, Still, again, goes to why I think we're attracted to the idea of these virtual providers over maybe some of the other other models where it's not as clear to us how how these companies will, will gain real scale. Right. So let's talk about the EMR space, electronic medical records, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, uh, which is you know a space that's been very hard. You know, seen practice fusion, all scripts, others. Um, is Epic going to continue to to just absolutely dominate? And like, will you know startups disrupt incumbents in that space? I, I'm skeptical. I'm very, very skeptical. I think Epic will continue to dominate for a long time, partially because, um, you know, partially because it is very difficult to rip out the system of record that people have been using since the very beginning yep. out of a lot of the major hospital systems. And what you're seeing is hospital systems are not uh, deconstructing themselves. They're not, you know, getting smaller and smaller. They're in fact getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So right. the bigger systems that have always had Epic are buying smaller systems and consolidating local power which is why um, lots of entrepreneurs will have a hard time just starting a payer, by the way, 
is because there's lots of consolidated local negotiating power in the providers. Um, and if you look at insurance business, that's really what they're doing. They're right. you know buying providers for a certain price and then reselling it to you know employers and consumers. Um, but you know, I, I think Epic is here to stay for a long time. I think people sometimes misunderstand the value of Epic. The value of Epic is not to make a doctor's life easier. Just to be clear, the, the value of Epic is to do revenue cycle management properly right. um, and to code things properly and discover new ways for hospitals to save money and make money. Um, so and it does I'm, a good job I'm pre, it does a very, it does a fantastic job if you right. go ask um, the power users of Epic about it. Um, I think there's certainly lots of room for improvement on the provider side, making yep. the provider's life a little bit easier, um, being a little bit more efficient, driving more efficiency during the visit, et cetera. But um, I don't think that's the primary right. concern of most hospital systems with Epic. Right. When you, when you guys talk, do you have a thing to say? Um, I mean, I think the thing that I would say is, in general, like what Christina has said is exactly right. Like the, the business case of installing an electronic health record was made on the idea that you could improve billings. Right. It was not made under a business case of we're going to enhance, uh, you know, like the patient experience. We're going to deliver better clinical outcomes. And they would argue they did improve the productivity of physician because that's measured in revenue production per yep. hour, not like how long they spend typing. And so if they could transfer two hours of charting to them at night, that's yep. their time. What right. do they care? And so I would argue like the EMRs have done a great job meeting their business case. And like the big failure, in my opinion, was like the government coming in and putting these incentives down for high tech saying, go install electronic, like electronic medical records with a very specific set of functionality. Now, I think the market incentives were changed to say, look, we're paying for outcomes. We're paying you as a group of you know, doctors and hospitals to sort of figure it out and reduce the cost of healthcare. What I know is EMRs would collapse in on themselves as right. a system of work. It is impossible for them. They're great at what Christine said, fee-for-service, revenue cycle right. billing, extract all the maximum codes out of this encounter. They're, what they're terrible at doing, which we know is actually in any way like understanding what's going on with the patient when they leave the clinic, coordinating, following up with them, like managing them as if it was like a CRM system, coordinating, yeah. like sharing data uh, uh, amongst themselves and any kind of like robust analytics, they just don't work. And so I think that's the interesting thing is like, where is there going to be a market-based incentive of yeah. where we're going to pay providers differently and thus they're going to have to select new technologies. And until that exists, I would agree with Christine. I don't think there's a displacement of, of, of electronic health record systems. We need proper market-based incentives for that to happen. Otherwise, I just don't, I don't know why, like if I was running Stanford and I was the CIO, I don't think I could make a business case for replacing the EHR until the physicians go on strike, which, yep. you know, might happen. Might happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have one stealth co-investment in the space. What, why are you excited about? What do you think they need to do? Well, I, I think like there's, there's areas of healthcare that have been neglected. And so the, the one interesting thing about the electronic health record space is there's a lot of actually specialty electronic health records. And so we tend to talk about Epic as if they're the only company in the right. category. And yet if you go and talk to specialists, they're actually using very different systems of work mm -hmm. uh, for, for what they do that are specialized to their use case. And so it, it turned out when you looked at it, no one had actually built uh, uh, an electronic health record system for primary care physicians, mm -hmm. which is something I just find fascinating because even though they are general practitioners dealing with the undifferentiated patient, which sounds like they should be able to take the most generic form of an electronic health record, their workflows are actually highly yep. specialized. And then going forward, 
it seems that they're going to be leaned on more and more and asked to do more and more things as kind of the hub of the healthcare system. And no one had really built any tools for them. Yep. And so these kind of innovative um, you know, primary care providers, and I should call them self-described innovative primary care <laughs> providers, uh, companies such as like Iora Health or right. Privia or Village, Village yep. MD in, yes. in Chicago, uh, many of them have had to build their own electronic health record systems because actually nothing on the market supported their use case. I don't think those businesses can scale because they're building right. brick and mortar in-person clinics. And the question is, if like we want that form of primary care around the country, do I think it needs to be 100% of primary care physicians? No, because I think a lot of primary care can go away, which right. is maybe a separate question. But for this kind of high-intensity use case, particularly in the Medicare population, mm -hmm. there was just really no system of work for, right. for those people. So that was kind of the underlying thesis of the company is like, shouldn't there be one? And if we believe that primary care, at least some pockets of it will become more important in the future, maybe there's a piece of real estate because the payment model actually is changing for them, which might create a wedge, like an entry wedge for right. the company. Earlier, uh where are some other wedges in the digital health space that you guys are, are excited about? Or... Can, can I say something? Please. Yeah, I just want to add before Christine goes. Like the other piece that was really missing from the essay, like that I haven't, I don't feel like we've done a good job of kind of um, giving more guidance to people who want to work in the space is like play with something explosive. Like mm -hmm. get your hands on something that's actually like could potentially create like big returns and outcomes. So we talked about the specialty clinic. You know, in your um, on, on Doc Daily, I talked yep. about genomics. It's just yep. that's an explosive environment. If I know right. something is getting cheaper and faster in the future, and I can yep. count on that, then better believe like if I invest today, tomorrow I get like more of it right. faster at the same price, which is crazy. Like almost nothing in healthcare looks that right. way. And so, so if you find opposite. something like that, you should yeah. go after it and pursue it vigorously. And so it's like the one thing that I like really regret leaving out of the medium piece of like, what are all these explosive right. forces? And so one of the ones that we're like seeing um, is this idea of like the clinical coming into the, onto the consumer yeah. side. So it's like really easy to access some set of drugs as a consumer now first before you have to go to the doctor's office and get the script and then go over right. to the pharmacy. And then you see these companies like Nurx Emerge yep. and it's like you don't even really know that there's a physician in the background. You don't really even know there's a pharmacy in the background. Like you go online, all of a sudden you have drugs. Yep. 23 of the pioneer in diagnostic yep. testing in a way that was like a super thin layer. In fact, they didn't even have a physician reviewing or ordering that test for you. There's this other thing that's happening, which is like consumer side being turned into clinical grade tools. So it's mm -hmm. not about like moving the blood pressure cuff from the hospital to the home or the, you know, like the 12 lead EKG from like the hospital to your home, but actually taking consumer stuff and right. saying, like, this could become really, really clinically useful. Mm -hmm. Historically, all that was, so we're clear about what I'm talking about, was somebody typing their symptoms into Google. Right. That was, like, the most clinically useful thing you could do as a consumer in terms of, like, giving data to a consumer service and hoping it became yep. clinically useful to you. Christine's company plays with that, like, explosive force, and she should, you know, talk about it before. Before you went, I just wanted to, you know, like, talk about, like, something we've not done well in terms of educating entrepreneurs. I mean, I mean, that, those are some of the wedges that, that I'm talking about. But, but just to answer Malay's question about what Evidation does, but Evidation harnesses a lot of this explosive data um, that's emitted from our digital interactions with everyday devices and um, analyzes and collects and analyzes this data against health outcomes. Right. So now we can use, you know, things that you, you would probably throw away or most, um, most healthcare uh, professionals would just throw away. Um, your digital interactions on your phone, um, a lot of you are wearing smartwatches, some of you are not, but a lot of you are. Um, those signals, and when you have a d density of them, can be turned into 
uh, clinical signals in many ways and correlate with health outcomes to both predict the onset of diseases and describe their progression in a way that we're capturing literally with surveys today. Yeah. Literally, like your physicians asking you in your six month visit, how have you been feeling lately? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what you say to your physician when they ask you, how have you been feeling lately? But it's a little bit like answering the phone when your mom calls. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so fine. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just bringing a lot more clarity into that discussion, I think, and a lot more objective measures of how someone's doing is an explosive force in healthcare. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, we really underestimated this probably like three, four years ago. There was this, uh, like the kind of like Eric Topol tribe, yeah. Dr. Eric Topol tribe, yeah. who thought, it was all about like shrinking down clinical devices. Like everyone will have a stethoscope at home, and everyone will have an, like a ECG machine at home. And um, like Christine's company builds lots of these things, but cardiogram is like a good example of like mm-hmm. that went way further than anyone would have thought three years ago. Like everyone thought a live core was like this interesting thing of like oh they can put an ECG on your phone. Right. What's way more interesting is that all of us are wearing an ECG, so we receive notifications on our wrist, and so by processing the signal. In, a, in a, like a very rigorous, like validated way, if they can actually demonstrate a diagnostic function with that, or even a screening function to yeah, be to be to be, uh, to be frank about it, that is explosive to right. me. Like the idea of medicine shifting from like a thing where you have to go in somewhere and some expert tells you what to do has been through all these years of training to like no, I literally just bought this three hundred dollar Apple Watch because I like to make phone calls on my wrist right. and I like to work out, and now all of a sudden there's a switch. In the health application, it says, "Would you like to be notified if you have atrial fibrillation?" That is crazy. Right. I mean, like to me, like I don't think anyone predicted this like three years ago. But as Christine said, like this data is like explosive right, right. now. And it's not just it's not just wearable data. Like, mm-hmm. um, sorry, I'm just like no, so from Christine's yeah, company because it's so interesting. Like this whole conversation that we're having right now. Her company could probably like phenotype us, like using it, and right. you know make predictions about our health. Which is also a little a little scary. Maybe Christine could talk talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, there's too. definitely a double-edged ethical <laughs> sword going on here, technology ethical sword going on here, and this brings it back to like data ownership and transparency. Right. Some things that we talk a lot about at Evidation because we see the power of these tools. Like, can I just take your voice and speech data and predict whether you have cognitive decline or sign yeah. of cognitive decline? And when you can do it, and I assure you, it can be done. Um, it really. You know, it really reframes like a lot of the use of this data very differently. Right. And how we think about who has access to my data, why they have access to my data, what they're allowed to use it for, et cetera. And so I, I think we're going to see a, a big shift um, in the way healthcare currently treats our health data, right. which is it's honestly easier to get for me to get my data from IMS, or I guess they're called IQVIA now. It's easier to get my data as a vendor through IQVIA than it is for me to ask my physician. Right. You, should, you should say so. what, what this company actually does, because most of the people probably yes. listening to yeah. the podcast don't know who IMS now, I, IQVIA, what they actually do. Well, I, I, IQVIA is a mashup, really, of, of two very large companies that merge together. One is called IMS Health, yep. and the other is called Quintiles. Quintiles is a CRO, so they're yep. a clinical research organization that runs clinical trials, essentially, on behalf of lots of different biotech and pharma companies and med med device companies. Um, IMS is a data aggregator. So they go and they have deals with lots of provider systems, payers in some cases, all over the world. Um, And so they have every drug drug, um, script that's written, fulfilled, et cetera. Uh, That's how they got their start. And then they've expanded to include lots of EMR data, um, lots of claims data, et cetera. And so they've got all this data aggregated um, in the back. 
um, which is just so ironic to me that here, you know, we hear almost on a daily basis, it's so hard to get my record, right. I can't get it anywhere. You know, it's a big deal when Apple Health announces, oh, you can, you know, potentially access your record uh, on, on the phone, um, and all of your data is just sitting out here in this dark pool, right. in a way. Sitting out there, right. So it's 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 like dark, being dark data, right? yeah, being transacted, being bought and sold by people. It's all being backlinked <laughs> yeah. on the, on, it's all being linked together on the back end using like yeah. probabilistic matching. And they actively market that. Like to our faces, <laughs> they say like, you can buy the health records of like, and they don't, they don't say oh, Eric okay. Torenberg, but yeah, you yeah. could buy, we could go and buy your health records and probably like re-identify them. Of course they say we shouldn't do it right. for that use case, but in fact you can. At the same time, like I just can't like push a button on my phone and get my own health record. So this juxtaposition is it's crazy. It's going to change. Yeah. Right. It's fine. And I'm curious even to take a step beyond, when are we going to get to a point where, whether it's our VR phone or VR watch or whatever, we can sort of tell, hey, Eric, you, your blood sugar is low or, hey, you know, you, you know, eat this or don't drink that or you're feeling depressed. You need to chill out. <laughs> I, I don't know that you ever want that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know about you, yeah, yeah. but I get nagged yeah, a lot by, you know, various people in my life to eat correctly and right. to sleep properly and exercise. So I, I don't, I actually think... Um, I know lots of entrepreneurs come and pitch this notion of like, we have nudges for behavior change. Yes. And, um, I was probably guilty at one point of doing that too. And then you quickly realize you don't actually want all that. Right. right? Um, and so I, I think these systems have to be designed. Um, so I think that that can be here. But aren't a lot of people want quantified stuff? Like yeah. to the next level? Use a question. Exactly. But that, that system can, can be delivered at least in course format today. Yeah. Um, I, I think where, um, you know, people don't think all the way through the problem and we look, we, we like to look for founders who have thought all the way through the problem right. is very quickly you get to a point where mm, I don't really want the proactive nag as much as I want to be able to question and interrogate and get intelligent answers back. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's careful balance there, right. obviously, but all of that stuff is, I mean, so we, we operate in a world where um, what some, a moniker that's popular to use right now is called digital biomarkers. Yep. And this is that notion of what you're talking about, which is when can I get all my data in one place so that uh, I, I know when I'm depressed yep. or I can keep track of this and yep. look back at it, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think we're basically there. If you look, do a lit search on a lot of the things you're talking about, anxiety, depression, yep. stress, productivity, workout performance, et cetera, those algorithms all exist. Right. Um, what doesn't exist and what's harder to do today is to match all that data with your electronic health record right. in any meaningful way. Um, that That's the only piece that's missing. Right. Um, so I guess what do you think would be the biggest uh, thing that would cause behavioral change across people to eat less or uh, work out more? Like is it, is it that we don't... Right. Okay, okay. So it's, it's not that we don't More have data. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think uh, there are different, I've said this for years, there are different strokes for different folks um, at different times even. And that's the whole problem with uh, behavior. And that's kind of harkens back to, I guess, you're calling it Lemke's law. Like, what works for who, <laughs> right. by how much and when. And the problem is it, it changes uh, something right. that, so today, something that work, might work for you, Eric, to get you started right. if, if you needed it is the nag push, right? right. It's like, I want to be nagged for a little yep. bit, and then I got the hang of it, and then I don't want to be nagged, then I want to interrogate my data intelligently. 
Um, and, and so it's just, you've got to find the button for everybody and it's different and it changes all the time. Yep. Um, and I think we're close to having enough data to be able to tell when those inflection points are happening. It's just, um, you got to like really work on that problem. Right. Yeah, yeah I, know. I, I don't want it to be misunderstood what I said earlier um, or, or that I'm ascribing this to, to Christine. It's not that digital therapeutics don't have value. It's right. like, what is the durability at a, on a single person level at a single moment of time that this one product is going right. to work for them? And that's what I'm expressing is it work? I think what Christine is saying is like, we have to have like a multi-parametric approach of understanding right. the person at a pretty deep level and on an ongoing, like continuous basis because their behaviors can right. change frequently. Their health status might change frequently. And it's really about getting them to the right, the right thing for them at that, at that moment in time, which it turns out is like a really, really complicated right. problem. Yeah. So I, I would tend to agree with Christine that a lot of like the tools and stuff are kind of out there. We know, we, yep. we know lots of stuff. Yeah, uh, but we don't really know like that at a very deep individual level. Like I right. could say for Eric at this moment in time, yep. exactly what's best for you to. I don't think you need to exercise or right. uh, eat less right now, but like uh, maybe sleep more or something right. like that. It's it's just it's it's just hard to tell right now. Yeah, um, the you mentioned also mentioned the piece that the big some of the big companies in the last you know decade or so have been uh, Viva and Fitbit. You know, Viva sort of vertical SaaS for farm industry and, and Fitbit sort of, you know, consumer wearable. Uh, do you think that um, the next big, you know, companies will look very different from from what's worked in, in, the, in the past, in the last decade, in terms of what, what, what what's successful, the next unicorns? I certainly hope so. Right. I mean, I think there's definitely going to be a profile of company that looks similar. So I think there's... Um, do you think there will be another fit? Like, will there be another of a big wearable... I mean, wearable is a great uh, story for the, the the early team, and I'm assuming if investors sold their stock, there was like a fantastic venture return because it was an insanely capital efficient business. But Vivid is not a good story today. Right. Like, I don't. I mean, it's to take nothing away from yeah, yeah, like, what that team did. Yep. But if you look it's at the tough. stock today, um, I think I texted Christine on Christmas Day, like whatever that was, 2015. <laughs> yeah. It was like top of the app store right. and I wrote peak Fitbit. This is it. This yeah. is like the, okay, the, and I think that this was maybe one where we had like a uh, violent agreement and I wrote right. a long S1 analysis of why the company probably wasn't, wasn't durable. I don't, I don't actually think many things are going to look, look like that right. um, in the future. Like I, I don't personally see like another sort of like consumer, um, you know, like general purpose device right. uh, emerging. I mean, w an interesting wearable that no one ever talks about that has an interest, like interesting revenue, interesting market cap that went public. I think it was last year is iRhythm, mm -hmm. which was like a wearable halter monitor, which right. sounds boring. It's a medical device, but actually like solved a real problem and then automated a lot of the, uh, automated the, it fully automated the data collection and automated some of the analysis of, of that data. And over time they might build something more, more interesting and, and durable. So you might see companies like that and kind of the clinical clinical wearable space. But I don't I don't personally expect to see another Fitbit kind of company. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think that's I, I do expect to see more Viva type of companies, especially um, in the clinical trial space or starting in the clinical trial space and maybe growing outward. Um, but I, I do expect to see another sort of unicorn sized vertically oriented SaaS company appear. Yeah. Right. And so, so I, yeah. sorry, the last thing I'll say is like the interesting thing about all the public companies right now, like in this sort of like health tech space when public in the last five years sort of are trading well, like really own their trend space. Like they own it as the singular right. one. And that might be why their stock is doing well because there's nothing else to trade in if you want to yeah. get that trend. So Teladoc, 
if you believe in telehealth, that is the one company you can put money into today. Right. And in fact, they have over 100% growth quarter over yeah. quarter. Like they are a clear market leader. Is that durable? I don't know, but it's like really interesting. They own that trend. Health equity, which is in health savings account, owns the consumerism trend. They didn't bet on like a particular consumer behavior. They just said like more of you are going to have more like costs like on your own. You're going to open these things called health savings accounts. And so we're just going to be the people that help you open health savings accounts and manage that money. Like, I don't know how you're going to spend it or what right. you're going to do, that you're going to be any more rational, but we're just going to help you out accounts. So they own sort of consumerism. Look at Evelyn Health. They own value-based healthcare. And so all these companies that have looked like uh, interesting as, as public companies over the last few years own something, which gets back to what Christina and I were saying. I'm like, what is your explosive right. force and how do you be the company that kind of like controls and owns that and not like some small chunk of it, which might might be good, right. but like really is the de facto company for that particular you know, explosive force. Talk more about clinical trials. Uh, what what might that uh, Viva Size Unicorn look like or where might they you know, try to get a wedge in, in that space and broadly, what will sort of the future of clinical trials so look I, like? Um, so clinical trials is a highly inefficient process right now. Um, everything from designing a study and the right questions to ask all the way through where to do it, to find the people who should participate in these things. Like, everything about it is super, super inefficient. And if you look at total R&D spend, if you look at the pipelines of a lot of major life sciences companies, they have to, like, solve this problem urgently. Um, and they're willing to throw a lot of money at solving this problem urgently. Um, where most entrepreneurs tend to enter is in recruiting, which I would argue right now is actually the wrong place to enter. Mm-hmm. It's an easy place to enter. It's sort of like ad targeting was, if I came from ad targeting land. Yep. Um, Back when ad targeting was a thing, um, everybody was trying to like become a DSP or everybody right. was trying to like find eyeballs essentially. And it turns out all that layer got commoditized so fast, like before you could even really fund a company. Yeah. <laughs> At some point it was like terrible to be an ad targeting company because there's so many of you. Yeah. Same thing is going to happen in clinical trial recruiting. And, and so I, I look at some of the folks who are going into clinical trial recruiting, I see the pitches and I'm kind of like, I see ad tech all right. over again. Um, I, I think where there's really interesting and... I don't have like a fully formed thesis about it. I'd be interested to hear what Malay says about it. There are interesting wedges in how um, sites are managed and how sites are set up and how um, investigators or, or clinical research personnel at sites interact with the clinical trial. Um, and we, we have our eye on a couple companies in the space that really are trying to form a network of sites. And that's, that's kind of interesting. That's like a network-based business that could be built inside of healthcare yep. where you could grow into something that's even more interesting than just servicing clinical trials. Um, so that's one area where I think it's an interesting wedge. Um, the other area that I think is an interesting wedge is what new types of data are people collecting clinical yep. trials? Um, and can you be, in a way, a core lab for that type of data? Like, can you um, assist people with both the collection and al- analysis of the data and return of that data? that um, describe new ways to um, measure outcomes in those trials. Um, so that, that's another area where I see an interesting wedge in that I don't see a lot of people aiming at. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't want to paper over what Christine said. Like, uh, what happens in clinical trials a lot is like they collect blood or other yeah. spe- samples or specimens, and they're sent to a core lab for processing. Yeah. And what Christine is alluding to as a wedge is like, won't there be digital collection of right. data and information in the future? And so could you become the core lab service where all that data is centrally routed through and could be potentially like even more interesting than some of this uh, traditional sort of specimen and sample data. The way um, I think Christine covered a lot of like why clinical trials are, are an, an interesting area. The way that um, I would tend to think about the space, like going back to our framework for investing is like, Number one, the people who feel this pain acutely are sponsors. Yeah. Like, and those are the pharmaceutical manufacturers. And so unless you have a business model 
that directly extracts value from them in relationship yep. to how much value you create for them. If you pull a clinical trial in, I would say you're probably doing like you're you're attacking your business model like incorrectly. Yep. They are the they're the ones who stand the most to gain from clinical trials becoming more efficient. And so first of all, like the configuration has to be like that. And then if you look at the clinical trials process, I mean Christine, Christine talked about it. There's a lot of things that happen in sort of a loop of a clinical trial from recruiting to enrollment to managing the participants to getting all the documentation right to the monitoring, reporting, and then how you choose sites. So it kind of exists in this circle where you're setting up single sites to do all these functions and the sites exist in a network of sites right. and that's one clinical trial and then you have the next one and the next one and the next one. And so what is the advantage entry point of that loop that gives the sponsor real leverage to actually improve Yep. those loops. And so Christine was saying like, maybe you just have to control the entire site, like the full right. full software stack. Maybe you even have to get into services. What does that look like? So we, we don't, we don't have, uh, you know, like the perfect answer for that. I think that's just how we tend to look at it is yep. what is the advantage entry point. And by the way, there are dozens of companies in each one of those slots offering like kind of point solutions to solve these kind of yep. minute problems. My guess is none of them will actually turn into right. valuable, durable uh, sort of businesses. The other super interesting like dynamic of that space, and we haven't actually seen companies like capture this, but it's a but it's a thesis of the distribution dynamics of these businesses because there are many to one network effects on mm -hmm. both sides. Of a given site works with multiple pharmaceutical companies, and a pharmaceutical company works with hundreds and thousands of right. sites. That if you find your way into one of those areas. You get this distribution either from the sponsor down to the sites, but then when you're in the sites, if they like what you're doing, they might introduce you to more sponsors, right. and the sponsors introduce you to more sites. And so, is there actual uh, distribution effect, like a distribution advantage right. from working between the sites and the sponsors? So we're interested, probably, um, you know, like deeply in that interface because there could be fascinating distribution dynamics between the sites right. and the sponsors through this many to many relationship that exists. How do you guys think about advising uh, companies that, like NERCs that try to go direct to consumer? I, I believe you mentioned that um, one of the misnomers people have is that consumers don't pay. What are some other sort of uh, like advice or, or, or misconceptions that people Christine have? Christine told or? me before she came in, she, yeah, she wants to kill tropes. <laughs> so. What are other tropes you want to Trope kill? Killing. Kill tropes. Yeah, I, I mean, the first, con the first trope is that consumers don't pay, which is just a misunderstanding of how healthcare works in the United States. Yep. Um, consumers, in fact, pay every single month. Yep. Um, I, I think that trope comes from, look, if you put a um, service in front of somebody, they'll actually just assume their insurance should pay for it yep. uh, versus, you know, they paid, you know, 500 to you know $1,200 a month for their insurance and now yep. they have to pull out their wallet and pay again. That That's what people are, are sort of reacting to. Um, and, and so I, I think if you're going to run a, if you're going to run something like NERC's, um, you either have to have a convenience bar, uh, you know, you have to be solving like a convenience problem, a painful convenience problem for someone where they're willing to pay extra for that right. convenience. And then hopefully that, that just like Uber, that convenience yep. um, filters down to everybody else at a cost that makes sense. Um, or you have to figure out and do all the piping in the back end to make sure your thing can be paid for. Uh, before going out to consumers and going direct. Mm -hmm. um, and either of those strategies will work. What what doesn't tend to work, I think, uh, or show the conversion properties um, uh, necessary to build a, a big, durable business is working through existing, your big beta, this beta, beta, C thing. Mm -hmm. um, unless you can provide a gimmick of some sort for consumers to pay attention to that channel, 
pay, I mean, when was the last time you paid attention, I guess, to your employer telling you you should sign up for right. a weight loss program? Yeah. Um, it's probably pretty low odds you're going to mm-hmm. pay attention to that message and not be totally offended by it in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the B2B2C channel is what a lot of these folks are pursuing, but I, I would argue that there might be other ways to attack the market um, mm-hmm. that show more dynamic conversion dynamics like existing B2C direct companies. Right. I, I don't know. You, you should. We might disagree on this, actually. Um, I mean, I, I think what I would say is there is there's some idea out there that, like, you shouldn't go B2C. You should do B2B2C. Like, people talk about the pivot that happens yep. frequently of these B2C companies start, and they think they're going to do it, and it doesn't work, so then they go into B2B2C. And frequently, I would have people come to me and say, like, hey, we, we, we heard this. We heard the employer space is good, and we want to, like, figure that out. Can you... Can you tell us more about it? And what I would say is Christine actually hit the nail like right on the head is it, it turns out that companies that fail in B2C, it's because they don't really create actual value for the mm-hmm. end consumer. Um, they're not doing something that the consumer values. And I'm not even saying that they would be willing to pay for it, just like actually wants in right. their life and makes their life better. Turns out, like most people actually don't want to be told that they have a disease and then right. nagged by an online <laughs> yeah. nurse. Like, even yeah. if I give it to them, for free, it's yeah. like, why are you telling me I had this disease I didn't know I had, yeah. and now yeah. having somebody like call me every right. every week, uh, you know, to get me to change change my behaviors. So I would say actually, very few of the companies that have um, started B two C and then went B two B two C actually proved out that consumers wanted what they were selling, much less their willingness to like pay for right. it. Which is why I see many B two B two C companies fail. Like their first fail is actually. Consumers don't want what they're what they're doing um, mm-hmm. to pick on a company. Castlight is a great example of that. Right. I don't think an average consumer cares about like shopping online for mm-hmm. for their healthcare using this service, and so they didn't solve like a fundamental human problem first. So it turns out like the enrollment is super low. Like, yep. with, through the employer talking about all the stuff Christine said, but like people just weren't weren't adopting it, and then the employer ROI falls like flat right. on its face of like nobody's using this thing that we're paying for. Then. Clearly, we're not going to get, like, my myself as the employer who's paying for this is not going to be able to create a new value either. And so I would say, like, you just have to start with, like, right. are you solving a real human problem? And maybe B2B to see, like, B2B is the right channel to distribute that. But just remember, like, they're not really good at distributing stuff. Like, I don't think yep. anyone thinks of their employer as a great distributor of novel new software. Like, I don't think as, like, if I'm a sales rep, at Christine's company, I like go in thinking to myself, the context of my work is Christine and her HR team should introduce a disease management yep. program um, for me. The context is like, is pretty, is pretty awful there. And then the other like big thing is we're just like killing myths about the B2B2C space is like, well, number one, we already said it, like most companies don't enroll anybody. So the sell yep. through, the dis- as, as distribution goes, is actually not a good distribution channel yep. for most companies. Um, second, like you might not even be creating something consumers like, so you get the employers to pay for it for a little while, but the churn churn ends up high. Then the third piece is like many of them are too narrow to actually bill for the entire population. Right. And so you're just getting kind of like these narrow slices. So imagine I told you you had to do a big e enterprise sale for a hundred users of, <laughs> of your product, which is like what a lot of these companies are doing. And so and so they so they end up bleeding out. So I, I think that advice. It's, it's not to say that no B2B2C companies will succeed. In fact, I think many are mm-hmm. uh, doing well. Like, we, we tend to focus on, like, um, like a, a bunch of entrepreneurs are just busy growing their companies. They're not right. talking about, like, how big they are. And so I think there's actually some at reasonable levels of scale. And Teladoc has yeah. done, you know, like, su- su- super well at, at this point in terms of 
like getting public and being a public company. But many of the companies I think are mistaken by going into this B2B2C channel because they haven't really figured out why that model m- makes sense for them. They've just been told right. you can't do B2C, so go B2B2C. Yeah. yeah, and people don't talk about the, the sort of the B2C wins. GoodRx is an example yeah. of a B2C smash hit that nobody ever talks about. Right. And they just solved a real problem for a consumer, which is where can I find the cheapest drug? Right. I mean, how simple is that, right? Yeah. Um, and so back to the point of like solve a real problem uh, and then figure out what your channel is. Yeah, and if consumers didn't pay, I don't think they would be searching for cheaper drugs. <laughs> they didn't right. think of themselves like what Castlight said was like, hey, go search for a doctor and save the insurance company money. <laughs> And they don't care about that, but I know right. they're paying for drugs, and so they search for cheaper drugs. Like yeah. that's Crazy solving a real problems. human problem. That's a fantastic yeah. example. But I was going to ask you about that space because that space is is what you know is very crowded. A lot of people have mm-hmm. tried to build business space and continue to try to build businesses in space. When you see a space like that, I mean, there's GoodRx, there's NimbleRx, TinyRx. There, like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, pill pack. I mean, when you see a space that's crowded like that, is there is there going to be multiple winners? Do you encourage people to stay away from a space where you know there's already I, I don't think we would necessarily encourage a founder to do like a drug pricing search engine right now. I, at least I, right. I probably wouldn't. Maybe maybe Blaine has. I, I mean, we really want to understand whether they have a differentiated differentiated acquisition model for right. consumers. Very similar to how um, you know there were how many social networks out there at one right. at any given time. And it's not to say that you shouldn't have ever invested in MySpace or Facebook or Friendster or whatever. It's just that what is your differentiated model of of acquisition and what are your growth metrics? Right. So we just evaluated differently. That's all. Um, if somebody came up with a magic way to find more people and, and get more people on their platform searching for drug pricing, I, I don't think we'd take a look at that data and go and just dismiss it out of hand. I think right. we'd want to really dig in and understand what they're doing differently or how they're thinking about it differently. And I mean, I think like um, the other companies that you that you mentioned. I mean, I, I 100% agree with Chris, Christine on that. Yeah. But the other companies you mentioned. Or drug search engines, right? They're pharmacies, so right. Nimble and uh, PillPack, and like maybe Script Dash, and yep. uh, I guess now Alto. Uh, maybe you put Capsule yep. in, that, in, in that in that bucket. So a bunch of them have started, and I think the interesting question still comes back to what we said before, which is like, can you run a better pharmacy? Sure. Right. Like I actually think you can deliver a much better consumer experience and all that. How do you bring this business to real scale? Yeah. Like where is the distribution advantage? of the company that's not entirely based on capital. And right. so I think if a company came to us and said, like, actually, our tax to LTV is not terrible. Right. We can acquire consumers for X dollars, and we see three three X return on LTV. That's fine. I think right. that's okay um, yeah. as a business. The question is, like, for a pharmacy company, it goes back to the value extraction question of, like, who is the pharmacy not serving well in the system today besides the uh, besides the patient? Is it not serving pharmaceutical companies well? Is it not serving the primary care physician well? By the way, your doctor never knows if you fill a script. So that's right. an example of like where yeah. value creation yep. could happen, and then that could unlock a distribution advantage for yep. you. Have physicians now might want to prescribe more, or they can't like directly like right. be monetized, like incentive to sell you a script, but they might want to encourage their patients to yep. use your pharmacy, not because of monetary value, but because of, of information value. Does your uh, payer, who's now buying data from IMS, become interested in like? getting data feeds directly from you. Like, what is the universe of other people that are kind of left out of the equation by today's pharmacy? So I think it's a first-level insight to say, like, the pharmacy experience is broken. It's like, yeah, no shit, I know the pharmacy experience is broken. The question is, like, is there a way that, like, somebody else in the system could help you gain a a distribution advantage? Because I I just don't think it's enough to say, like, I can build a better pharmacy. It's how do you build a better pharmacy and then bring it to serious 
and significant scale. What about a business like Figure Figure One? Is that what it's, uh, like sort of like a Stack Overflow? Gore picks for doctors. Right, the better way to. Frame yeah, it. would you have invested in that business, or what would need to be true for you to be have been excited enough to invest in that or that type of business? You, you you had a better take on this business. I, I, I wasn't as familiar with this business as, as I think you might have been. I, 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 I think physicians are like curious and they, they tapped into something that's like super interesting. Um, probably like the areas that would have been like most important would have been building a real like uh, kind of like network around that business and then further transactions besides like consuming right. consuming content of like what what do you do next now that you have these physicians connected a common sort of like use case is physicians, you know, calling or texting another physician yep. for their opinion on a case. And so I don't know, just like what were the secondary use cases of, of the platform? And I know they drove initial early engagement. I think if you were looking at that business today, it would be hard not to say something around computer vision right. because it's collecting a lot of image image yep. data that's being labeled by mm -hmm. lots of physicians. And so I don't know, that's probably like the secondary aspect that I don't think when the business was started, right. I mean, this is like five, six yep. years ago that figure one, figure one got underway. A lot of people were focused on classification algorithms for all this kind of like medical imaging. Not that people weren't doing yep. it or couldn't see it, but today that there's like a very, very like large focus on yep. classification of medical images. And so I don't know, they must have one of the most well-labeled yep. data sets uh, out there, out yeah. there right now. I, uh, we could be here all day and I could ask you questions. I haven't even asked that much about bio. Um, but I'm curious, like, uh, last question, because I gotta get you guys out of here, is, um, you know, we've given a lot of advice to, uh, you know, people looking to build a business in the space, you know, build something, do something explosive, solve a customer problem. You guys must get, you, you yourself are a repeat entrepreneur who decided to build something in, uh, in digital health. Um, What's sort of a last word of advice that uh, that you give to repeat entrepreneurs or just you know entrepreneurs who've who've done something in, in a different space who are now looking to tackle the beast? Humility, yeah. um, practice a little humility yeah. when you go into healthcare. Uh, it is a more complex industry than than maybe um, folks who come from tech or traditional tech uh, to this space. There's just a lot of complexity. It turns out, um, and it, it turns out that. Um, you know, the best investors in, in the space will probably be people who really deeply understand it through a lot of hard like, lessons yeah. of prior companies they've invested in um, because it's just a very difficult whiplashy space. I mean, even down to, um, like, why doesn't someone just disrupt a PBM? And right. it turns out, like, the moment you even start to disrupt a PBM, like, the contracts they have with all the different pharmaceutical and life sciences companies – um, you know, they start to clamp down on those things and go, eh, we're not going to distribute you over here if you do business with this right. tiny little company over there. <laughs> and so the dynamics of this this business are just really different. Mm -hmm. And they're all hidden and opaque. Mm -hmm. um, and so something that seems straightforward um, is completely backwards. Right. I, mean, I remember the first time I um, uh, somebody told me about capitated models for managing patients with diabetes in the Medicare population. I was just like, that doesn't even make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like, why would somebody want to get more people with diabetes in their health plan? Aren't they trying right. to, like, find healthy people? No, it turns out they get paid more right. for patients with diabetes. There's higher margin on this because it's all paid on a percentage basis. And if they can actively manage those patients, they make more money. So it's just like there's little things like right. that all over healthcare, little traps like that all over healthcare. You just have the humility to, like, dig in and learn those things. Yeah, yeah I think um... – Building on Christine's point, like it's not, this is not a universal truth, but many of the best founders I've worked with in the healthcare space um, don't come from healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, 
And I think that's I think that's fantastic. What what many of them, and again, I'm not saying this is universally true, but what many of them have done is they spent probably like a year before they started companies studying. Mm-hmm. They talk to lots <laughs> of people, right. and they take very very good notes, like their Evernote file or their yep. notes file or their Quip or whatever it is, is just full and full and full of information that they've been they've been collecting. And so, I mean, my biggest piece of advice, like if you want to start a company in this space, if you haven't talked to like ten entrepreneurs who built companies or are trying to build companies in this category, like you're definitely starting your company the wrong like the wrong way. Like go start with those people who've been yep. building building businesses um, in this space. And then there's tons and tons to learn. Eventually you just have to take a leap of faith. But you know, I, yeah, I just I just know many founders who've spent, you know, as long as even a year uh, studying before they decided to to move into it. I think the easiest thing to do uh, is like what we were describing before of like, oh I can disrupt PBMs. Like right. why does this exist? Like yeah. I saw that and it's like Jeff Bezos says your your margin is my opportunity, <laughs> yeah. so I'm just gonna take the money from this side and give it to these other people. Yeah, yeah. You know, like whatever it is, it's, I think it's, it can become very easy to yeah. convince yourself, like, or you have a bad care experience, or a loved one right. has a bad care experience. I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna go fix that, and I love the instinct, but yeah. it's, uh, I think the space just requires a little bit, a little bit more uh, work and effort to understand like how, how you build a real business um, in the category. On that note. Thank you guys for coming on the Village Podcast. It was fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Eric.